Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. I want to talk to you. I've been doing this series on finding your superpower. And today I want to talk to you about the power of faith. So why don't you just grab a hand? We're going to pray. If you need a date, squeeze a hand right there. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing here today. We just pray, Lord, that you would break out today. That you would break out, that people would break out of their boxes, they break out of their, you know, their their self-confinements, Lord. We take people out of solitary confinement, even people that are are our flock that are on, uh, on streaming here. Lord, we just pray that you would just awaken them to new possibilities. And that, Lord, that literally that the, the, we pray for the earth to tremble at the sound of your people and the sound of your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I want to talk about faith um, and the role that faith plays in our walk with God. Um, you know, we're, our walk is called a faith walk. You know, we're supposed to be of the faith, not of the feeling and not of the facts, of faith. And so, you know, the question becomes, the simple question is, what is faith? And Hebrews 11, one says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I, I want to just begin by saying how important hope is, right? Because faith is the conviction of things hoped for. And you know that verse in Proverbs that says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's not what, gets, it's not what I hope for that gets deferred that makes me sick. For example, Maybe I'm in a financial crisis and I'm hoping for a check that comes in the mail and the check never comes. It's not that I didn't get the check that makes me sick. It's when I stop hoping. Because hope, hope is the foundation of faith. I can't have faith without hope. And how many know that faith is what opens the doors of possibility? And so um, we want to, so faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And verse six says that without faith, it's impossible to please him, God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Let me read that one more time. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, God. For, it is, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Working for a reward is not wrong, it's required. Now let me say that one more time. Working for a reward is not wrong, it's actually required by faith. They that come to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. How many know Jesus is returning and his reward is with him? Now, I understand when we say you don't work for reward, we're saying like, don't love people just so you get something back. Yeah. Don't give just so you'll get something back. I understand that compassion and love have to be the primary motivators of everything we do. I get that. But let's not make it a perversion. Let's not have the wrong version. In the midst of me loving people and, 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 and being motivated by, by compassion and passion and love and kindness and gentleness, let's not lose sight that I'm also supposed to want a reward. Gosh, okay, this is a lot harder in this, ser- this service. I, I think that we seldom have one motivation for anything. I think that we're much deeper people than that. And I'm saying that when... I work for the kingdom, I am to anticipate that there, would be, that, there would be, uh, uh, that there would be a reward that comes back to me. That literally, that I can't give without God returning. I can't love people without love returning to me. 
that whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. If I sow generosity in money, I usually get money back. If I sow generosity in kindness and gentleness, I usually get kindness and gentleness back. If I need a friend, best thing I can do is be a friend. You get the idea. Like I actually, when I need a friend, if I be a friend, I get friend back. Good point, Chris. Okay. So um, this last week, I think it was a week ago, Randy Clark was with us. I love Randy. He's been with us every year except for last year. And he's spoken to school and he's changed, I think, the life of this church. Uh, it's so powerful what Randy brings. Uh, healing and miracles uh, have dramatically increased in, among our, our, our family and our tribe because of Randy's presence. And I was there on Wednesday night listening to Randy teach, and Randy was teaching on faith. And I was super inspired. Um, not that I'd never heard it before, not that I've never taught it before. He used the same scriptures, used the same principles. But you know how it is when you're sitting there and you hear something like you never heard it before, even though you've heard it thousands of times or hundreds of times? And so I was sitting there, and he was talking about, Randy was talking about how he went to Argentina and met Omar Cabrera, and, and how, he, how Omar taught him, he said to Omar, like, how do you get so many miracles? And he told Randy, he said, well, what I do is I create an atmosphere of faith before I ever move in miracles. And Randy was talking about what he learned from Omar, that literally that Omar raises the level of faith in the room before he ever goes after a miracle. And typically he does it by sharing testimonies of things God has already done. And so Randy was sharing, and Randy loves statistics, and I love statistics. I love, I love part of the, I think the, the greatest, one of the greatest challenges of coming out of the business world and coming into the church world, I feel like I'm in the ministry in both worlds, but that in the, in the business world, I love uh, vision and goals and plans and steps. And, you know, every day I would get a printout on all three of our auto parts stores and our auto repair businesses, you know, how much, uh, how much business we did that day, how much profit there was. And it was easy to have a sense if you were succeeding or failing. The challenge when you come into, like, this kind of ministry is how do you know when you're succeeding? Like, how do you know when you're winning? How do you know when you're losing? I mean, you could do the right thing, but you're working with people who have a free will. You can counsel people uh, to help their marriage and they can still choose to divorce. You can pray for the sick and they cannot get well. Uh, so, you know, how do you, actually, how do you actually decide if you're growing or learning? You know, it can't just be how many people you put in a chair on a Sunday morning. And Randy has this thing about, about statistics that I, I loved. And he was talking about how he began to experiment on what Omar taught him. And he said... He would get about 1,000 people. What he learned is, is that when there was about 1,000 people in the room and he would just share and he would just go after healing, about 17 people would get healed. Over a period of a year, he just did all of this study. He said, but if he came to the same meeting with about 1,000 people and he shared testimonies and built faith, he said an average of 47 people would get healed which is 300% more people. He said, then if he proclaimed a word of healing, for example, if he said God is healing knees right now, and I think that was even the example he used, if he said God is healing knees right now, that if he did, well, let's, let's back up. If he said God is healing people, he said an average of about three people would get healed of a knee injury in a thousand people. But if he proclaimed 
knees are getting healed right now. He said it would be 10x. 10 times more people would get healed of bad knees. Instead of three, it'd be like 30. Because he proclaimed the word. And it built faith in people. Think about that in his example. There's 30 people sitting there that need to be healed of knees. And Randy says, or someone says, God is healing people right now. And you're sitting there and you got a bad knee. 27 of those people won't get up and won't get healed. Only three. But if he specifically says, there are people here that you got a bad knee. God's healing knees right now. 27 more people will get healed because he proclaimed it. And what I'm getting at is that I began to think about how important faith is, not just in healing, but in our lives. Like the expectation, what is faith? The earnest expectation of God's provision. Like something powerful is about to happen. Well, the next day was Thursday morning, and we have a prayer meeting Thursday morning, a governmental prayer meeting. By the way, you're invited to come if you'd like. Um, and we just pray for an hour. And uh, the guys were running the prayer meeting, and they're like, do you have anything? I'm no. And then I was sitting there, and I'm like, I think I do. And I got up, and I shared that story. And I said, I feel like we should create expectation because the prayer meeting is about the restoration and, re- and reformation of cities and countries and states. So I said, I feel like we should create a culture. I was telling the, the prayer people, I feel like we're supposed to create a culture of faith before we actually pray for nations. I mean, if we're trying to get a knee healed and we need faith, if we're trying to transform a country, we probably need some testimonies of countries and cities transform so we can raise our faith and actually believe God and see 10 times more things happen because we're coming with faith for the nations. And it was this really powerful um, uh, meeting that we had and then Bill, this, uh, two weeks ago, handed me a book, or gave me a book, and the book was called Greatness. It's just a white book, white cover. It's really thin, which inspired me to read it. <laughs> it's written by uh, David, David Cook, and the word greatness is written on it in like 12 font, like too small for a 67-year-old man to actually read. So, um, so I got the book, and I'm like, I don't know. I just got inspired to read it. And I read the first couple pages and realized it was a secular book. Um, and it was, I told you it was written by David Scott, who is a, he is a sports psychologist. And so I'm like, this is a secular book. I wonder why Bill gave this to me. I found out later Bill hadn't even read it. <laughs> but he felt like he was supposed to buy it for me, so he bought it for me. And so I'm reading this book, and... He's a, I said he's a sports psychologist and he helps teams and especially you know, individual athletes um, you know, uh, be, become better athletes and win games. So the San Antonio Spurs have a star, had a star named David Robinson. Some of you may know who David Robinson was. Uh, great, great player, you know, on par with Michael Jordan. He's just one of the great all-stars of, of, of the league. And, um, and David Robinson was going through a real slump. And part of it would manifest in the fact that he couldn't hardly make a free throw. He made like 50% of his free throws. And he was currently, he was uh, previously a great free throw shooter and he is a great all-star. And so the Spurs were losing games because David was just going through such a bad slump. They heard about this guy, David Cook, and they brought him in and said, do you think you can help 
do you think you can help David Robinson? So anyway, he, um, he helps David Robertson, uh, and, he, and he teaches him this three things. Uh, he teaches him to, first of all, imagine himself, no, imagine uh, making a free throw, for example. And then, then he says, now I want you to play it out in your mind as if you're the one making the free throw. And then the last part is, I want you to trust that you can do it. Well, anyway, that doesn't sound like a big deal, right? Well, David Robertson becomes the MVP of the league that year, and the Spurs win the NBA championship. A few years later, Tim Duncan, who takes, basically eventually takes Robertson's place, David Robertson's place, is in a slump himself. And so they go, hey, we got to bring that guy back in, see if he can help. Sits with Tim Duncan, does the same thing with him, has Tim Duncan write a two-page paper on what it looks like, what it actually physically looks like for him to play a game in which they win. He wins the MVP that year. The, the Spurs win the championship that year. I'm like, this is good stuff. I get to the last chapter, which is supposed to be the last chapter, and it says, there's one more chapter in this book. I sealed it. Don't open the seal unless you're prepared to be offended. Well, now you've got to open the seal, right? I mean, who's not going to open the seal? So it's actually sealed. It's actually like glued shut. So I cut the tape and I opened the shield, the, the, the seal, and it was the ten trumpets and ten horns. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Sound like the Book of Revelation. I opened the seal, and he begins by saying, "I'm a Christian. Everything you learned in this book, I learned from Jesus Christ. I'm born again." And he has this three or four pages of his testimony how Jesus saved him and then he goes through what he just taught these sports guys right he also teaches golfers but golf isn't real sport that's why I didn't mention it (laughs) he was sharing names of golfers I don't know any of them but I assume they must be famous if it's Tiger Woods if it's not Tiger Woods I have no idea who else golfs I mean who would want to golf anyway People are like, I got hurt golfing. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, and I got hurt walking. You know, and I'm just like, I <laughs> tripped over a blade of grass. It was so traumatic. Now I'm wearing a helmet. You know, I, I don't know. Anyway, I forgot what I was going to say now. Aw. Anyway, it was good. Whatever it was. What's that? Oh, his testimony, yeah. So, (laughs) hey, 67, lucky I can still stand up here and remember my name. So he's sharing his testimony, and then he shares about the three principles that are all through that book, like I just shared with him brief in brief. And he shares about how each of those principles is rooted in Scripture and how those Scriptures have formed his life. And then the last page is an invitation to receive Jesus Christ so you can be truly successful. Amazing. Amazing. So I, I just started thinking about what, it was, what would it be like if I cultivated greatness to cultivate success in my own life and in your life, and not just in a meeting, not just in a prayer meeting where I'm trying to build faith, but what would happen if I lived by faith? 
No, I, I know we're supposed to live by faith. I'm not saying it in the traditional sense, like, let's live by faith. I mean, in what I just taught you, like that we'd actually, that we'd actually envision the day as if it would be what it would be like for us to be successful in God today. Maybe, you know, you look at your plan and you're like, I got these five meetings. God, what would this one look like? What would that one look like? And I just begin to envision, and maybe I bring some testimonies in. Maybe I'm going to have a hard conversation with somebody. And I think of the last time I had a hard conversation with someone that went really well. And I begin to envision that. I begin to say, this meeting is going to be amazing. There's going to be a reconciliation between these two people or between me and them. And I just begin to actually inspire faith for my own life so that I'm actually walking by faith and not just praying in a prayer meeting by faith or doing a healing meeting by faith, but I'm actually living by faith. Years ago, when we were in Weaverville, a young man got saved. He was 16 when I met him. And he was 21 when he got saved. His name was Danny Silk. You may know him. I worked with Danny in his pre-Christian reprobate days. And we worked together in a, in a tire store. And um, so I knew Danny's history and all of that. And when Danny came to church the first Sunday, he was 21. He received Christ in that meeting. The next week, we had Dick Joyce, who was a prophet. He would come to our church twice a year. And he called Danny out in a Sunday morning meeting and another young man. And he began to prophesy over Danny that Danny, that Danny was going to be a, a, a revivalist, that he was going to shake the nations and that he would be the next James Dobson. Something happened in that, in that meeting because we all knew Danny past, present. But suddenly, when the prophet began to prophesy, not as he is, but as he's going to be, we began to relate to Danny in this prophecy. And all of these prophecies started to come forth, not just that one, but many of them over the next year. Danny could hardly go anywhere in which someone wasn't calling him out and calling greatness out of him and reminding him of who he was in God. And something powerful happened in that we were beginning to know Danny after the spirit instead of after the flesh. Listen, Danny wasn't the only one. I named Danny because you know Danny and you see the fruit of it. But there was literally, there was literally a couple hundred people during that time. Even Brian and, and, and Eric and, and uh, my kids and, and Charlie Harper and all these people. Like You see all these people, Ben Armstrong, I mean, all these middle-aged people, so many of them came from our Weaverville days and they grew up in a culture of expectation in which we were learning who each other were, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So we weren't, we weren't, we weren't just saying, well, wasn't, isn't that Ben Armstrong? He's the kid that grew up down the street. But we're like, no, isn't that the guy that God called out and said, you are a prophet to the nations. You're going to shape history. And we began to know each other. I'm saying, like, we were began to infuse, we began to impregnate the whole culture, the whole community with this sense of faith for people's transformation. It's not by accident that a hundred leaders came out of Bethel Church. I mean, out of Mountain Chapel. Yes, many more out of Bethel, but out of Mountain Chapel. It's this little tiny church, two or three hundred people in Weaverville, California, a city of 3,000, and a hundred leaders come out of that church. 
How did that happen? It wasn't an accident. It was a culture of faith that attracted greatness in people. I quoted this the other day, but 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. But I've been enamored with 5, 16. He says this, we no longer know each other after the flesh. We no longer know each other after the flesh. Although we knew Christ this way, we know him no longer. Next verse, and if any man be in Christ. The connotation is we need to know each other, born again, future past. No, yeah, future present, not past present. There's something that happens. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say that when you live with a people that continually anticipate greatness in you, it sucks you into your destiny. It's like pushes you into your divine call. It's like a magnet that goes, come on, Ben Armstrong, get up here. As opposed to stay little. Oh. Paul said this in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind. Do you understand? This is the Apostle Paul who killed, who was responsible for thousands of the deaths of Christians. You can imagine that Paul was going from church to church, planting churches and in communities where the gatherings excluded the men, the fathers, the sons that he had stoned. And he's sitting there with a family in which that family, that family lost their father because of his stonings. And he says, I have to forget what lies behind. I have to press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm saying, we have to push past regret. We ourselves have to believe that God is doing something powerful in us. Are you with me? The Hebrew writer in chapter 10 says this. He said, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And the writer ends with this thought. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction. But we are those who have faith for the persevering of souls. He quotes an Old Testament, the Hebrew writer's quoting an Old Testament passage that says, if you shrink back, I have no pleasure in you. And the Hebrew writer goes, we're not like those who shrink back. We're like those who press ahead in faith. God meets Moses in Exodus 19 on a mountain. And the mountain, it's, it's thundering, it's lightning. It's this crazy weather, crazy weather system. And Moses is talking to God and God goes, listen, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna go down the mountain. You're gonna talk to the people. And you're gonna say to them, if they, if they obey me and keep my commandments, they shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God goes, but this is how we're gonna do it. Okay, what's gonna happen is, I'm gonna send you down the mountain. And then what I'm going to do is there's going to be lightning and there's going to be thunder. And then I'm going to, there's going to be a thick cloud. And what I want you to do is when you see the thick cloud, I want you to step into the thick cloud and then I'm going to thunder and I'm going to lightning. And then God said, and I'm going to do that. Listen to this. He said, the Lord said to him, behold, I'll come to you in a thick cloud so the people may hear when I speak to you. And may believe in you forever. I don't know if you got that. He says, okay, we're going to do it this way. We're going to make this big display. We're going to make it scary. 
The children of Israel were terrified, by the way. We're going to make this scary scene. It's going to be lightning and thunder and dark cloud. And when you see the dark cloud, I want you to step into the dark cloud. And I'm going to speak to you. They can't even see you. I'm going to speak to you through the dark cloud. So that they'll believe in you, Moses, forever. I was saved when I believed in Jesus Christ. I was transformed when I realized he believed in me. See, I understand that we're in a culture, not Bethel, in a world that has embraced nepotism and, and narcissism and entitlement as a healthy lifestyle. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying, I'm concerned that there's so much selfishness and narcissism and arrogance that we react to that and we become the reaction of that, which is a perversion instead of the right version. And we don't embrace our God-given identity and come with confidence to our God-given task and call. Are you with me? I'm saying, John Maxwell said this. He said, when, when leaders lack confidence, people lack commitment. When leaders lack confidence, people lack commitment. I want to read Nehemiah 6 with you. Would you turn there, please? You may be like, what's inspiring you to share this and teach this? I have been going through five months of deep sense of inadequacy. It's not my personality type. It's I'm not saying I never have gone through it before, but it's been intense. I go into a meeting where I'm supposed to be leading, and on the way there, usually the morning even getting up, I'm hearing in my mind, you're too old. When are you going to leave? Time for you to be gone. You're not good at this. Nobody wants to follow you. Deep sense of inadequacy. And... I feel like this message is like group therapy for me. <laughs> I feel like this isn't just for y'all. I feel like it's for all y'all. That this thing is, is in the air. You're no good. You'll never be anything. You're too young. You're too old. You're not equipped. You're too smart. You're too, you're too dumb. And the other night I had a dream. And in the dream, I was training people for war. And I got in an argument with someone who was standing next to me. And he man, the man shouted at me, what do you think you're doing? And I shouted back, I'm training them for war to keep them safe. And I want to tell you that the battlefield is the safest place you can be if God sent you there. I want to read you this, Nehemiah 6. Now, just, for, just to set this up, Nehemiah is a book of restoring the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra, so the, the children of Israel were uh, taken over by the Babylonians. You probably know this, but just for people who may not. And they destroyed the temple. They tore down all the walls. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And then the book of um, Ezra is the, is the story of the restoration of the temple. That uh, Babylon, actually Persia, Cyrus sent them back, the Jews back, so they could rebuild the, their city. And they rebuilt, the, they rebuilt the temple, and then Nehemiah is the story of the rebuilding of the walls. Now you're like, oh, walls, that's kind of cool, it's kind of cute. 
okay, remember there was no trains, planes, or automobiles. There was no atomic bombs. There was no, so, so think of it like this. You're living in the hood, in the ghetto, and you have no doors or windows. That's what we're talking about. And the walls were not like a foot thick and 12, 12 feet high. They were like five feet thick and like 30 feet high. And these walls have been torn down for 127 years. And for 97 years, the Israelites had tried to rebuild them. And what they couldn't do in 97 years, Nehemiah did in 52 days. It's one of the greatest miracles in the whole Old Testament. So I want to read you this, uh, uh, just this one chapter. When Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, everything's fine until he starts to be successful. And when they start becoming successful, they end up with these three enemies, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Gershom. And so we're just picking up in the middle of the story, verse one. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sanballat and Gershom sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet together at Cherim in the valley of Ono. Now, you probably have figured out why you don't want to go in the valley of Ono. Now, that's the Hebrew word, oh, no. Anyway, I will go on. But they were planning to harm me, Nehemiah writes. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I can't come down. I wanted to stop right now and I want you to say this. I'm doing a great work and I have no time to listen to your words of intimidation and fear. He said, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent him messages to me. They sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them in the same way. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. This is, this is social media. With an open letter in his hand. It is written and it is reported among the nations. And Gershom says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come, let us counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you have seen have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. Definitely social media. For all of them were trying to frighten us. Get this. For all of them were trying to frighten us. Why? Why were they sending these messages? They were all trying to... Come on, guys. Frighten us. And they said to themselves, they will become discouraged with the work and it won't be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the daughter of Deliah, the son of somebody, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. And let us close the doors of the temple, for they, are, for they are going to kill you. They're coming to kill you, and they're coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go in the temple to save his life? I'll not go in. I want you to say this out loud. Should a person like me, person like me flee? flee? Should I run, should I run? From, the enemy? from the enemy? I will not. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent them. I want, to, I want to point out something. That Nehemiah wasn't sure if it was the Lord or not. 
until he decided to not be afraid. When he stopped being afraid, he goes, then I perceived it wasn't God. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecies against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, listen closely, that I might become frightened. Why was he hired? That I might become frightened and that and act accordingly and sin so that they may have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O God, Tobiah and Sambalat according to these works of theirs. And Nodadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Don't you hate prophetic ministry that scares people? So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elu in 52 days. When all the enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You know, there is something about fear that it puts off like a smell. Now, I'm really using smell as more of a metaphor. There's something about fear. I, I learned this when, when we were doing deliverances, when I used to do lots of deliverances. I've done, been involved in hundreds of deliverances. And the first probably three or four years, I learned something from experience that if you were in the middle of deliverance, like if you were trying to get someone free from demons and you were afraid, the demons wouldn't leave. Like they could actually like smell and again, I'm using smell as they, they could sense. There was a sense, they could sense that you were afraid. And they knew that you had no authority over them as long as you were afraid. Because fear is faith in the wrong God. And I believe that that same thing happens when you don't have faith for your own ministry. When you don't have faith for what God's called you to. That people don't follow you because they can smell that you don't believe in you. So why should they? I actually believe, you know, I think it's, I think that we've all been in presence of someone who's trying to lead and you don't want to follow them and, you, and you're trying to figure out why. Like, is it a personality thing? Is, it, is there doing something like, you, 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 you walk away with your mind like, logically, you can't figure out why you don't want to follow them. But I will say this, that it's often because they do not believe in their own ministry and therefore they are not walking in faith in their ministry and they are not attracting you because they have not attracted him. When Joshua was commissioned by Moses as his successor, it says this in Numbers, I think it's 14. It says that God said to Moses, I want you to take Joshua down and, and I'll put him in front of the people and in front of the elders and also in front of Eliezer the priest. And I want you to lay your hands on him and listen to this. I want you to give him some of your splendor. No, I want you to give him some of your authority that the people, that the people of God would follow him. The word the word authority there is only used one time. 27 other times it's translated glory and splendor. Moses, I want you to give him some of your glory so that the people will want to follow them. I think it's imperative that we actually believe in the ministry God's given us. Yep. I, I, uh, yes, we don't want to be arrogant. Yes, we don't, we don't want to be a narcissist. We don't want to be entitled. But we, it, it's incumbent on us to believe that God has called us to a great work and that we are people who don't run from trouble. That, <laughs> okay, here we go. In Numbers chapter 13, I'm just going to tell you the story. Moses sent 12 spies out. I know you know the story. He sent 12 spies out to spy out the promised land. And they came back and 10 of the spies and all of Israel gathered. Of course, they were excited to hear 
about this promised land that they had left Egypt to come into this promised land. And so this, they, Moses asked the spies to give the congregation of 1.5 million people a report on the promised land. And they said, oh, the land is good. They brought back grapes that were the size of, I don't know, apricots or something. And, and, they, and they were like, it's, it's a great land. Only, there's only, the only thing is, is that there's giants in the land. And this is the report. And they said, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And we were like, and we were also in theirs. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And we also were in their sight. And the people all fell down on the ground and began to weep. Moses fell down on the ground, tore his clothes. Aaron goes, you're down, I'm down. He's on the ground, weeping. The people are complaining to Moses as they're on the ground, saying, you took us, brought us out here just to destroy us. And they're going on like that. Caleb and Joshua refused to fall down. They stand up before the people and they said, you're right. The land is great. And there are giants in the land. And here's what Joshua says. Only don't rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, of the land for they will be our prey. The word prey in Hebrew is daily bread. <laughs> the people said, the spies said, there are giants in the land. And Joshua said, and they shall be to us our daily bread. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. What did they think? What did they say? They, they were, what did they feel like? They said, we were like grasshoppers in our sight. Let me say this. If you feel like a grasshopper, you will feel like everyone thinks you're a grasshopper. You interpret the world not as it is, but as you are. Your commentary on the world is actually a commentary on yourself. Some people see a problem in every opportunity, and some people see an opportunity in every problem. Listen, it just de it's determined by what you see when you look out of the window of your life. If you feel like a grasshopper, everything's a problem. <laughs> John the Baptist in, in uh, Matthew 3 said, John the Baptist was preaching, make the crooked ways straight, make the rough places smooth. Right? He came it, to straighten out the, rough, the crooked places and he came to bring righteousness to people. And it says, it says this of him. It says, and he, and he dressed in camel's hair and he ate locusts. Grasshoppers. I'm pointing out that what kept the people out of the promised land, John ate, put a little honey on them, and ate them. It was a prophetic sign. I came to make the crooked places straight. What crooked places? The Israelites feared their destiny. They feared the people. And John said, not me. I eat those things with a little honey. The prophetic declaration. <laughs> Are you getting where I'm going? I'm just pointing out that, that God has called us to greatness. And by the way, I think this part's funny. You know, they get into the promised land 40 years later and they never see a giant. Uh, they don't see a giant for 300 years and then a boy kills it with a rock. Some people point out, well, Caleb asked for the the land of the giants. That's true. But if he had a battle, it wasn't even worth honorable mention. There isn't one battle that Caleb had with giants that's ever written in the Bible. So if he had a battle, it wasn't even honorable mention. 
I'm saying the thing that kept them out of the promised land for 40 years and a whole generation died off, they didn't even see the freaking giants for 300 years, then a 15-year-old kid killed it with a rock. By the way, if you don't have a giant in your promised land, it ain't your promised land. If you like row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, I want to tell you that you're in the wrong stream. If nothing is resisting you, you will not do anything worth resisting. Resistance is a compliment. It's part of the way you know you're on the right path. Jesus said, love your enemies. You got to have some. I don't want people to say at my funeral, and everyone loved him. I don't want everyone to love me. I want people who don't love God to not love me. Maybe. At least some of them. I wrote this. Worry is a squatter living rent-free in my mind and destroying my house of faith. Worry plants weed seeds of destructive possibilities that infect my imagination with movies of mayhem and madness. I want to make doubt a homeless vagabond that finds no habitation in my yard of possibility. Faith creates alternative ends to my personal documentary. It rewrites the final frame of my happy happy ever after script. I wrote this faith's journey. Faith sees the impossible. It believes Faith sees the invisible, believes the impossible, does the improbable, cares for the unlovable, helps the unsolvable, defends the vulnerable, destroys the unbobitable, and inspires the honorable. Faith attracts heavenly help and creates a force field against demonic darts. I believe that faith creates an alternative reality. I believe that faith creates an alternative reality. I'm almost done. I, I feel like we're living in, in a, a parallel universe is the wrong thing to say because it's like new age. But the kingdom is right here at hand and we live in this world. And when we receive the kingdom by faith, we step into another reality. And all of a sudden we step into what was impossible is now possible. What was sick can now be healed. What was broken can now be fixed. What was depression? You get the idea. Like, I step in by faith. Did you hear this? I'm, I know that by, by, I'm born again by faith, but I want to inspire born again people who've been born again for a long time to actually bring faith back to the equation and actually step into another reality. Into if, are you with me? That, that faith actually creates alternative realities and opens doors to, to celestial possibilities. Like, I believe the Lord is calling us by, to walk by faith, not just to pray by faith, not just to heal by faith, but to actually walk by faith. Are you with me? Would you stand? Thank you. Did you feel the mountains tremble? Did you hear the oceans roar? When the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ, their risen one. I love this song. I woke, I woke up to it this morning. It sounded so much better in my spirit than when I started to sing it. <laughs> but I want to pray for you right now. I believe that the Lord wants to impart a gift of faith to us. That we would actually believe in God and we would believe in the work that God is doing in us and through us. And so, Lord, I, I just release on me and on them faith. Faith. 
Lord, I pray that right now, that Lord, that you would open alternative realities to us. That we would look at our life and our problems and we would see opportunities. We would see giants and we're like, food for the day. I brought back food this morning. What is it? A big old problem, baby. We're gonna eat it for breakfast. This is our food. This is our diet. We were born to live in darkness and bring a great light. Lord, I release faith for a new reality for us. I pray for everybody that's going through hard times, that's going through fear, that feels, um, you know, like they don't, they're not qualified. I pray, God, that you would show them that they are qualified, that we'd have a Nehemiah moment. Should a man like me run? I'm doing a great work for God. I have no time to deal with your issues. Lord, I bless the people of God right now in Jesus' name. I bless the people, our family that's following us on, on, on online. Lord, I just bless them. And I pray that you would prosper, that you'd be in good health, like Joshua, that you would meditate on his word and be successful wherever you go. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelaton.com. Have an awesome day.